Dysbiosis has a new name and it needs to be treated differently to attain the results expected by your patients. What I'm talking about here is SIBO, S-I-B-O, Small Intestinal Bacterial Overgrowth. Professor Stephen Sandberg-Lewis is both an academic and clinical expert at successfully treating SIBO. Indeed, many of the patients referred to his practice have digestive conditions which have defied diagnosis and effective resolution. They seek him because the medical model has failed them. In 2010, Professor Sandberg-Lewis co-founded the SIBO Centre at National University of Natural Medicine, where he lectures in gastroenterology, one of only four centres in the USA specialising in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth diagnosis, treatment, education and research. You will learn from him how to assess GI dysfunction in your patients and to implement successful treatments to regain a balanced digestive system. Professor Sandberg-Lewis will be speaking at the 5th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held on the 20th to the 23rd of April 2017. To register, please click on the Education tab at bioceuticals.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And joining me on the line today from the USA is Dr, I should say Professor Stephen Sandberg-Lewis, who's been practicing naturopathic medicine since his graduation from the National University of Natural Medicine, that's NUNM, in 1978. He's been a professor at NUNM since 1985, primarily focusing on gastroenterology and GI physical medicine. He's a popular lecturer at functional medicine seminars, presents webinars, and is frequently interviewed on issues of digestive health and disease. He's the author or co-author of several Townsend Letter award-winning articles, and he's the author of the medical textbook, Functional Gastroenterology, Assessing and Addressing the Causes of Functional Digestive Disorders. Second edition should be out soon, so watch for that one. In 2010, he co-founded one of the only four centres in the USA who treat small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, with diagnosis, treatment, education and research, the SIBO Centre at NUNM. In 2014, he was named one of the top docs in Portland Monthly's magazine Yearly Healthcare Issue and in 2015 was inducted into the OANP slash NUNM Hall of Fame and I warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you Stephen? I'm doing fine this morning. That's a, bit of, <laughs> that's a bit of a bio. You've done a heck of a lot um, since graduating in 1978. So, so did you stay around N NUNM? Did you go away and learn any specialty or did you just stay there? No, I, I actually moved up what is north <clears throat> in the United States to uh, the Olympic Peninsula, and I did private practice in a small town for about 19 years. Uh, kind of learned 
learn the ropes, and then uh, taught a little bit uh, as an adjunct, and then finally came back 1996 to uh, to teach full time as well as practice. And I've picked up from a few podcasts and interviews that I've heard you give. You've a lot to thank your father for, right? I do, but I'm not sure if I, if I talked about my father before. Um, my father was a ultra perfectionist. He was a very hard worker and a very strong family ethic. And uh, he was actually, he was, I think he was more interested in people than I am. Yeah. I'm kind of more interested in people as uh, as they experience different health conditions. And uh, my dad was more of a, a real people person. So I, I have a good background from him. But there was something about natural medicine, I think, that you picked up from, from your dad. Wasn't oh, that's it? true. Yes. My, my father was very interested in Adele Davis, the then guru of natural medicine in the United States and I guess most of the world. And uh, he went and visited a naturopathic doctor in uh, Asbury Park, New Jersey, uh, and told me I needed to, to meet that guy, and I did. And he's the one that told me about NUNM and the, the whole profession of naturopathic medicine. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that was a great introduction. Way back then, naturopathy was not in a good place in the U.S. It, um, it's, it's kind of like what Australia is going through right now. Uh, it's, it's being attacked yeah. on all sides and, yeah. Yeah, it it was basically a nearly dead profession. Um, there was only one school, and they were uh, some years they would have four or five graduates. Wow! It was uh, it was basically a night school. Yeah. Uh, back then, and my my class was the second full time program, uh, so it was just a rebirth of it. And uh, yeah, there were a lot of us younger folks that. We're back to nature movement, and we heard about a profession that actually could teach you to be that kind of a doctor, and we were thrilled. And that's that just the year before me is when it just sort of took off again and started to really grow. Mm. And indeed, I, I heard you say that it was basically the hippies that saved naturopathic medicine in the U.S. But, but what I find is interesting is the changing face of naturopathy in the U.S. and Canada right now. Indeed, there's been some new development. I, I, I remember reading, a, I think it was a Twitter post from Paul Theriault. Um, shout out to Paul there, just by the way, um, talking about another win that naturopaths have had in, maybe that was Canada, I'm not sure. Well, there's no, there's no question. Um, naturopathic medicine is becoming more and more integrated into the whole healthcare system in the United States. Um, we're primary care physicians in a number of states, including where I practice in Oregon, uh, which means we're on the same status as all the other schools of medicine. Yeah, and um, it's it's really different. When it, yeah, we were renegades when I was in school and newly in practice, and now we're sort of not quite mainstream. And I don't know if we want to be mainstream, but we are part of the system. Mm, mm. Now, today we're going to be talking about something that's very dear to your heart, and that's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. 
But I've got to say, this is a condition that, and, and I'm going to be quite open here. When I first heard it, I sort of went, come on, another one. Tell me what it is. What's its basic pathology? Um, and is it just like a subset of, of IBS or, or how is it different? What, what's, what's its pathophysiological basis? Well, it is a, in a way, it's a subset of IBS because it is the most common cause of IBS. Right. Somewhere between 50 and 75% of cases of IBS oh. are, are due to this. But in itself, it's, it's something that has a story way behind it. And that's something that we're putting a lot of emphasis on, which is the underlying causes of SIBO. So there's layers there. Right. Um, but the, the basic, if you, if you, if you want to make it the simplest way to speak about it, I would say that post-infectious IBS the kind of IBS that comes on following food poisoning, traveler's diarrhea, or other gastroenteritis, mm -hmm. uh, basically is is the classic SIBO. And what we're finding is that there's actually an autoimmune component that when a person gets, say, a food poisoning from Campylobacter, yep. uh, which is kind of the, the standard uh, food poisoning. Uh, organism, yeah. then the bug doesn't stay around very long, but in the process of being there for a few days, uh, the bug is exuding a toxin called cytolethal distending toxin B, CDTB, right. which then stimulates the immune system to produce antibodies against that toxin. Depending on how much antibody is produced, that person may or may not develop post-infectious IBS due to SIBO. And these antibodies, if there are enough volume of them, uh, they will attack the nerve cells or the uh, pacemaker cells, the interstitial cells of Cajal, in the small intestine and down-regulate motility. So things start slowing down. And that migrating motor complex of uh, reflex that normally moves things through the small intestine will slow down. So over time, the commensal normal flora in the small bowel, normally very small numbers, will start to overgrow because of the lack of movement and the lack of flushing effect. Uh, so that is a major, uh, major underlying risk factor for SIBO. Okay, so, so we're talking about something that's going to be slowing down the peristaltic and gross movements of the bowel. So that's almost like an anti-serotonergic type effect. Is that right? Well, uh, anticholinergic um, and probably to some degree anti-serotonergic as well. Yeah. Um, there are, we know that uh, some of the organisms that, that live there do produce serotonin directly, as well as GABA and other yep. neuropeptides, and uh, that's certainly part of the picture. But a good thing to remember is that that the transit or motility in the small bowel yep. is very, very different than that in the large bowel. Right. So that's why a patient can have diarrhea-type IBS, where things are moving through their 
large intestine way too fast. At the same time, their small bowel has low motility, which is allowing bacterial overgrowth. Aha, right. I, this is something I tell you, I'm going to be glued to your um, seminars. You'll, you'll be speaking at the 2017 Bioceutical Symposium, and I cannot wait to hear you, hear you and learn from you um, because it's so important and it just seems to be, it, to me it seems to be one of these much-needed answers that people have been wanting. That that What stuns me, though, is you say 70% and Am I correct in saying that only 40% of IBS is infection-related, but then there's that other 40, uh, sorry, 30-odd percent of IBS which is not infection-related but is still part of SIBO? So there's another potential cause there. Is that right? Yeah, there are many other things that can slow down the migrating motor complex besides these antibodies, and I'll be speaking about all that. I mean, for instance, one of the more common things, especially in women who have twice as much IBS than men uh, compared to men, is that endometriosis, a common uh, gynecological condition, can cause some of the worst cases of IBS and because of SIBO. Uh, and it's in that case, it's because of the monthly bleeding into the peritoneal sac that leads to adhesion formation right. between the cirrhosal layers of small bowel and and those kinks that form from those that scar tissue. Yeah. Uh, really affects motility. Wow. It, it's going to be so interesting to to learn more about it. So, you spoke about having diarrhea as the overt symptom, but an overgrowth or a lack of movement in the small bowel. Can we go through some of the more common signs and and symptoms of SIBO? You've just said that it's basically gender biased. Is that correct? And if so, it, it, it can't just be endometriosis. What about hormonal issues or hormonal metabolites maybe? Well, remember too, though, that there's at least 25% of the cases of IBS that are not due to SIBO. And so there are lots of other causes of IBS. Yeah. Um, probably some of the more common common ones uh, have to do with learned disease behavior, uh, relate to the way people eat and not chew their food and rush too much, uh, the types of foods that people eat, so food intolerances. Um, and then many cases, people go through life thinking they have IBS, and it's just because other conditions have not been differentiated. So they may actually have a celiac disease that has never been diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even if they had a biopsy, it might not have been done properly. They might have pancreatic insufficiency and nobody ever thought to test for it. They may have hypochlorhydria and nobody thought to test for it, right. or a, a liver issue where they don't make enough bile. So all those things can can be in place. So what are the main symptoms of SIBO? The, the big symptoms of IBS and SIBO are change in stool form and, and frequency, so either diarrhea, constipation, or a mix of the two. Yep. The second is loading in the abdomen and distension. And the third would be some kind of pain or discomfort that's usually relieved by having a bowel movement. Right. 
So I guess it's going to those be... Those are the classic ones. Yeah, and, and because they're so ubiquitous, those sort of changes, um, SIBO would be a disease of exclusion, I would imagine. You'd have to look at physical things first, sinister things, teasel, you know, you spoke about celiac before, and then when these are negative, then you arrive at SIBO, or do you just jump the queue and, and test for something? Well, the thing is, it's not... Ex- it, they're not mutually exclusive. So, for instance, one of the the most uh, one of the serious conditions, the pathologies that can overlap with SIBO and they can cause exactly the same symptoms, is Crohn's disease. Oh, okay. So, Crohn's disease, especially especially when there is a fistula formation, yeah. is highly associated with SIBO because it's a great place for bugs to hide. Yeah. And Crohn's tends to thicken the bowel wall, mm. so then it doesn't move as well. So the migrating motor complexes slow down and the bacteria overgrow. And since the symptoms of Crohn's and IBS, SIBO, are almost identical in many cases, often doctors will be hitting with harder and harder, higher doses of immunosuppressive medicines when really what they need to do is treat the the IBS, SIBO, to get changes and improvement in that patient. So testing, how... I've heard there's a, there's a little bit of controversy with the different types of tests that you can do. Do you have a certain test that you prefer? Basically, there there's two ways to do it. One is if, if a patient is going to have an upper endoscopy mm. and they're going to be scoping to the second or third portion of the duodenum, you can request that your patient have a duodenal aspirate taken, and then they can culture that. Right. That, of course, is only going to show the most proximal type of SIBO when it's you know within a few inches. Uh, it's in the duodenum, and it's within a few inches of the jejunum, um, which is only one little fraction of SIBO. There are many... Since the small intestine is up to 20 feet long, uh, you can have SIBO lower down and it won't show up on a a duodenal aspirate. The other way is a breath test. And two breath tests are most common. One is the glucose breath test, which is it tests more similarly, correlates more similarly with the duodenal aspirate. And that's because it also only shows the more proximal type. Since glucose is an absorbable sugar, it feeds only the bacteria within the first one or two feet of the small intestine. And the next 18 feet or so, they don't get any. So if it's lower down where the overgrowth is occurring, you won't see that on the test. That's why we prefer the third type of testing, which is a breath test using lactulose. Lactulose is an unabsorbable sugar. Humans can't absorb it, but bacteria can break it down and turn it into hydrogen or methane, or organisms can do that. And um, therefore, we get to see the whole small intestine, and we even get to see the large intestine. Uh, We'll see a big burst in the last uh, 60 minutes where a lot more gas is being produced because you expect to have hundreds of billions of bacteria per gram in the large bowel. And what about combinations of, say, lactulose and, uh, forgive me, what was the second one? Glucose. 
Yeah, we, we're actually just starting to experiment with that. And uh, Dr. Carmelo Scarpignato in, uh, in Italy is, we're, we're kind of communicating with him. He's doing testing where he starts with lactulose, and if he doesn't get a positive, the next day he has the patient come back and do a glucose. Right. And others are experimenting with mixtures of it. So we'll, we'll know more about that in a couple of years. Gotcha. Just I'm just thinking about the microbiota of the gut and even how the different um, genera do I have to go further up the chain then? Families um, of bacteria. No, you don't have to go that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, how they change throughout life. For instance, you know, in newborns and adolescents, the proteobacteria are in higher amounts because the bodies are going through a major sort of muscle growth period. Whereas at other type time points in life, the Firmicutes and the Bacteroides are in higher amounts. Um, you know, pregnant women will favour the Firmicutes to harvest carbohydrates. And so there's all of these different time points throughout normal parts of life. But am I right in saying that SIBO is an overgrowth of not just bad guys, but good guys as well? I don't think of SIBO as being related to any bad bacteria. Uh, it's just an overgrowth of normal commensals. So it's normal commensals. That, I think, is important, an important piece. Gotcha. Just because things aren't flowing through, they're not getting washed through, and there are other mechanisms as well uh, that allow them to overgrow in, in what is normally uh, a 1,000 per gram in terms of colonies, it's a very normally a low volume uh, microorganism environment. Yeah, up the up high, yeah. And okay, so do you tend to get any skew in the types of families that you see? You know, the, the lactobacilli to bifidobacteria would be the simple one, but there's so many other good commensals there. You know, the Fecalibacterium prautsnitzii, the you know, there's some really good work by Clara Belzer out there, um, um, Acomantia mucinophilia, all of these other commensals that we don't get in capsules because <laughs> they're not available on stores, but they're still commensals. They're still good for us. Do you find changes or, or, do you, or peaks of any one or two or a few of these different commensals? Well, that, it's a wonderful question. And uh, the bottom line is we really only have two studies that have really laid out the more common organisms that are overgrown in SIBO mm -hmm. because not a lot of studies use uh, duodenal aspirate and cultures. Most of them are using breath. So when we use breath, we only know yeah, yeah. one thing. Yeah. And that is, is it yeah, hydrogen versus methane. Methane, we know, is produced by Methanobrevobacter smithii. And the hydrogen could be any number of, of bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the most common, according to one study, is Bacteroides, but then Lactobacillus about a quarter of the time. Clostridium about a fifth of the time, and then some aerobes uh, as well, yeah. like strep and E. coli. Because we always blame E. coli as a food poisoning organism, but mm -hmm. of course E. coli is one of the main commensals even in humans. Yeah. I don't know if you use E. coli and nissel as a probiotic in 
Australia. We, but we do now. We can get it. <laughs> Yay, we uh-huh. can get it. So for our listeners out there, you can get Nissel E. coli from um, mutaflor.com.au, which in itself is an interesting story. <laughs> Thank you, that German soldier who survived dysentery. <laughs> but let's go into other aspect, well, aspects of treatment, I guess. So what do you do? Do, you, do we talk about restricting certain types of foods? Do we talk about feeding certain types of foods to try and help these bacteria to normalise? Or do we have to say, hey, listen, we have to reset the gut first. We've got to strip you back. So especially in, in very small children, often we'll just change the diet the types of carbohydrates in the diet so that we're not providing substrate for these organisms. And typically, symptoms will dramatically improve Mm -hmm. within days. So that is a very reasonable way to do it. Um, The specific carbohydrate diet, the SIBO specific food guide, the low FODMAPS diet, the Cedars-Sinai diet, those can all create a very dramatic reduction in symptoms just by limiting the food source for the bacteria and then they can't make so much gas and then they can't create those effects. But um, generally, we find that to actually bring down the flora, not just reduce their food, uh, we, we do need to use herbal or prescription antibiotics or the elemental diet, which really starves them and their numbers go way down and then the, the test can be normalized. So we do we do tend to start with a, an herbal or prescription or elemental diet approach to reduce the numbers of organisms. And then we go immediately into a prevention phase where we use a diet, one of four diets, uh, together with a prokinetic agent, which can be herbal or prescription as well, to keep the migrating motor complex flushing things through. Mm. And whenever possible, we un- we try to uncover and treat, if possible, any underlying cause for the change in the in the migrating motor complex or the the overgrowth. And that's a key, I think, to uh, what I want to talk about at this symposium is that. If you don't treat the underlying cause, you'll just be managing yeah. this over and over yeah. because methane regrows within a month typically if you don't do anything to prevent it from coming back and hydrogen producers within three months. Gotcha. But what about other things? Um, what about, you know, we, we as natural health practitioners, we very commonly get caught up in physical aspects of treatment. But what about psychological aspects? I've, I've read papers on even exercise um, mon, um, manipulating our microbiota. So how can we help our patients with this? And, and what's the usefulness of this? Do you find it important or one of the lesser aspects of treatment? I think it's always important in every condition, but especially in this one. And certainly the microbiota really control the human genome. They outnumber the human genome, mm. like 360 to 1. Mm. And they, they turn on and off our genes. So they are in large part responsible for mood and uh, neuroendocrine activity. So 
for one example that, that I look pretty often is for gram-negative overgrowth. Uh, the gram-negative bacteria put off endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide. And lipopolysaccharide is, is one of the standard ways to stimulate not only systemic inflammation but central nervous system inflammation oh, yeah. uh, when you want to do that in research. And so we, we put a lot of effort into, into uh, number one, helping to treat SIBO so that there is less central nervous system inflammation leading to changes in mood, yep. but also um, changing things up so that folks aren't in such a sympathetically dominant state when they eat and when they're digesting. Um, just mindfulness, very important. Um, sometimes people get into patterns from childhood where they learn that eating is stressful, you know, because their parents would grill them during the dinner meal or something about their grades or whatever's yeah. going on. And people can continue to react that way through their whole lives and not even realize it's a, it's a program that they're playing. So wow. we have ways of, of changing those patterns. Okay. SIBO is notoriously recurrent, though. So, okay, I'm going to ask the devil's advocate question. You're an expert in this, and, and you know, like you're one of these four centers in the USA that specialize in the diagnosis and treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Just how effective are your long-term results with regards to, you know, these people that aren't treating it in a sort of um, more formalized manner? Has anybody looked at that? I, I hope, and I am starting to look into uh, a consortium of us, uh, at the different colleges of naturopathic medicine and universities to to do some of this as a multi-centered trial and see how how uh, the outcomes look. Oh, yeah. But I think I think you're you're absolutely right that this whole idea of given antibiotic, it might be a miracle. If it's not, well, I guess you'll just have to suffer. Mm. Um, it just keeps coming back. Uh, that that sort of approach, unfortunately, is is typical um, because docs just don't know enough about how to do this. But again, I think when when you check for the underlying risk factors that are causing it, maybe even in in some cases we find patients that have uh, superior mesenteric artery syndrome, where the superior mesenteric artery is compressing the duodenum. Uh, between the aorta and it, and that artery. And so they have this partial obstruction, which leads to SIBO. They're going to have that for their whole life because you can't fix that. Yeah. But you can teach them ways to help reduce symptoms and you can control the overgrowth with, say, alternating uh, different herbs two weeks at a time so they don't become uh, resistant to them. And in a very non-toxic way, just control... The, the whole uh, syndrome yeah. and have a patient doing quite well. Um, and then there are some underlying risk factors you can fix, um, like adhesions. There, there are very effective massage and physical therapy techniques that yeah. can remove adhesions. So uh, I think that's really important, as well as a, a understanding the prevention mode, which is it's going to require improving motility, 
mm-hmm. and it's going to involve a diet. Everybody who does this kind of work has some form of diet, maybe liberal or maybe very conservative, yeah. but some some type of diet that restricts the specific types of carbohydrates that these bugs need so yep. that keeps their growth down. Right. So with that mesenteric artery syndrome, forgive me, what was the correct terminology of that? Superior, superior, superior. mesenteric artery syndrome. Right. Is that part of the mesentery mobile or is that a fixed structure? Where I guess where I'm going here is what about things like perhaps yoga or physical manipulation of the area? Like is it something that somebody can, you know, manipulate with movement or physical exercise? There, there are some techniques for that. Um, they're not especially effective necessarily, but superior mesenteric artery, you know, is one of the, the three mesenteric arteries coming off the aorta going to the gut. Yeah. And uh, it's just in a position where it overlies the, the second portion of the duodenum. So it's, you know, it's That's a right perfect there. place to yeah. cause obstruction. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, there are there are some positional techniques and things, and we we're wondering. We have a technique that we use to treat hiatal hernia mm. of the stomach, mm. and um, there there are some that believe that perhaps part of what we're doing when we do that gentle manipulation is we're uh, actually mobilizing the ligament of trites, which is uh, yeah not just a ligament but has some some muscular component, and yeah. maybe we're just making things more flexible in there. Right. People get dramatic improvement. So that that to me is like a, a really interesting thing because the ligamentum of treats or trites, um, I always piqued interest when I learned about this and nobody seems to know about it. But this suspensory ligament sort of sits under your stomach and it's called the, the point of no return. Above, above it, you vomit and below it, you poo, poo it out. But you can actually get decent relief from symptoms by exercising or, or manipulating this this ligament come muscle sort of component, correct? Well, yeah, dramatic, uh, almost instant improvement from the symptoms that are caused by hiatal hernia. Um, but uh, perhaps, we're thinking just perhaps, uh, we're also changing the length of that ligament and that may be helping in, in some small intestine and duodenal conditions as well. Wow. Um, because a lot of people get relief from it. Yeah. Now, um, just talking on treatment as well, on herbal treatments, um, I, I was reading a study where three different companies were used. And when you look, um, you know, with a broad brush stroke, they seem quite different. Then you look at similarities between them, and there's these troporeferative trophorestorative type herbs and also these antimicrobial type herbs. Do you have any favorites or any ones that you tend to avoid, any ones that you use short-term and not long-term? Well, we try not to use any of them very long-term except for the culinary types like uh, ginger and cinnamon. Yeah. But but uh, if we use we use a lot of berberine, especially for the hydrogen type SIBO, mm. and you know, that's killing all kinds of commensals. That's why it works mm. for mm. SIBO. 
So it's it's to be used with caution and not not more than a few months, usually two or three months at the most. Gotcha. On a daily basis. Yeah. Um, there are, of course, there are formulas that don't kill uh, or aren't aimed at killing organisms as much as they are at altering their function. So, you know, there's a, a product that was designed by a gastroenterologist in Texas that's called Autrantil, which uh, is a combination of horse chestnut, uh, peppermint, and quobracho. And it's, it's specifically for methane, and it's the way that it's supposed to be functioning, according to the explanation, is mm. that peppermint sort of relaxes the upper small bowel uh, and then uh, relieves some symptoms. And then the quobracho is absorbing hydrogen ions, which the methane producers need to make methane, so yep. they have less of their substrate. And then the horse chestnut uh, affects their enzyme system so that they they are less able to produce methane from hydrogen. And so, you know, some percentage of people, maybe 40%, get a lot of instant relief from that that they haven't gotten from other products. So it, killing isn't the only way to go. And So uh, glad you say that. Know, lots of ways. <laughs> yeah. I gave up on the kill-kill mentality years ago, and I just I see natural health practitioners wanting to kill things rather than rebalance them. You know, it's this real, a very medical reaction in in my opinion, mm -hmm. in my current opinion. What about when you look at the different berberine t containing herbs? You know, I mean, you've got the good old golden seal, which, which in itself has got um, ethical issues with procurement of of decent quantities mm -hmm. of it. Then you've got things like Oregon grape and and we've got Coptus and we've got so many different types of philodendron is another one. So many different herbs that we can use. Are there any herbs that you tend to sort of say, well, you know, this herb's got berberine, but it's also got that other component. Is, is there any sort of tweaking that you might do um, to, to use in these types of patients with SIBO? Well, again... Uh, more hydrogen specific, but we we tend to use a combination of whole plant mm. and the berberine extract, not just pure berberine extract. I think people get more of a negative reaction. More people are going to react to that if you just use the pure isolate. But uh, we use a combination of some hydrastis, uh, Oregon grape, and the berberine. Uh, isolate all together in a capsule. Gotcha. And we seem to, uh, you, we use a large dose of that. Um, we spoke with Stephen Buhner, who's written, herbalist who's written several books on antimicrobial herbs and the treatment of Lyme and other conditions. And he, he told us, well, I think your best bet, this was about seven years ago, your best bet to, to treat the hydrogen producers is going to be find an herb that pretty much stays in the gut and isn't instantly absorbed and then uh, use a pretty high dose of it. And he he recommended uh, berberine-containing herbs five grams a day. Wow. So you know, 
our our patients are working up to nine or ten capsules a day because they're 500 milligrams. Yeah, yeah. In Australia, we'd have, I guess, issues with getting that amount of berberine because we can't use isolated berberine in Australia. So... Well, I guess we'll have to sort of find some other way about treatment. That'll be an interesting thing to talk about at the symposium, I think. Mm-hmm. So what about the facility of antibiotic treatment, though? Um, you know, I think, is it Gerard or Jerry Mullen? He's used... Uh, Gerard you know, Mullen, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so he, there's a very interesting paper that I've read of his, um, herbal therapy being equivalent to rifaximin for the treatment of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I mean, that's that's incredible. Um, I don't know well, how many patients that was on, but but I'm just looking at the antibiotic regimens used. That can't be on five patients because there's about 10 different antibiotic regimens. Then they've got the herbs. <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in, a, I believe, 600 range or, or so. Um, yeah, in their study, they found that all they, they didn't look at people feeling better, their only outcomes they looked at were normalizing the breath test. Right. And they didn't even specify hydrogen or methane. So I think they were oh. focused on hydrogen, but right. they found that using rifaximin and other prescription methods, 34% of the patients they treated had a normal test afterwards. And 46% of patients that were treated with herbs had a normalized test. Wow. So uh, they considered that statistically identical. It wasn't a a statistical difference, but it was 12% higher in the herbal group. Right. I'm I'm looking at this antibiotic list here, you know, amoxicillin, amoxicillin slash clavulanate, which is um, augmentin fort is the tr- one of the trade names in Australia. I hope I'm not transgressing anything there. But you look at that, keflexin, um, doxycycline at 100 milligrams PO, that's, that's really an anti-acne dose. Um, um, flagyl, they're very commonly used antibiotics in Australia. What about them causing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. What's the issue about their causing it? Well, certainly a good percentage of patients when I'm taking their history and they have symptoms of IBS, you'll hear that they took an anti-acne medicine for daily for years when they were a teenager. Yeah. Um, and such as, such as uh, tetracycline. Yeah very broad spectrum. So I think that there is a component there, and I think that those folks that have that history are also more likely to have a yeast overgrowth component, which complicates it. So they have SIBO and SIFO, right. fungal overgrowth as right. well. Right. And, and you can scratch your head if you don't realize that they have both because you're confused. <laughs> well, I, I think this that's is, another podcast. These, <laughs> yeah, these typical lists. These typical um, lists from the research that show antibiotic regimens for SIBO that are other than rifaximin, um, they're looking for, number one, less expensive treatments because rifaximin can be very expensive. Mm. And number two, um, they're realizing that this is a classic thing. When a patient comes in and says, you know, funny thing, I got these terrible IBS symptoms, and when I took 
uh, ciprofloxacin for my urinary tract infection, all my GI symptoms went away for almost two weeks. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And then they slowly came back, and now they're back. Yeah. And so I think that's where these lists kind of come from. They can, they can knock back the bacteria for a period of time, and symptoms go way down, but they're not a they're not a real treatment because it's all going to come back Yeah, I, without the right approach. I've got to say, I, I totally agree with you. I, I was, when I was reading about this research and I was reading and listening um, to the interviews that you'd done, what was coming up in my head was these old studies. I remember one done in Sweden where they used, I think it was flagell, and they basically eradicated as much intestinal growth in the... Um, in the in the intestines, uh, as much um, microbial growth in, in in the intestines as they could, and they were decreasing food allergies for a period of time, and like all of these old 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 studies, and then it sort of ideas start swirling in my head about what were they doing? Probably not good in the long term, but in the short term, they might have been reducing small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. They just didn't know it as that back then. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the old yeast. Or, in- or treating a blastocyst hominis that hadn't been found yeah. previously. There's so many different things. I, I seriously, I just cannot wait to learn all of these things. Uh, and uh, as I said, please forgive me for hanging off you like a puppy dog. I will be asking you more and more questions as I think about other ideas. I hope I, I've asked some pertinent questions for our listeners with FX Medicine today. But I've got to ask you. What sort of other things will you be treating us with um, at the uh, 2017 symposium in Sydney? What other things can delegates take away so that they can change their practice, start doing the right thing with these patients? Well, we'll we'll talk about the things that lead to conundrums uh, where the treatment doesn't progress Mm. um, by talking about the, the best way to follow these things through. Um, another and and that's going to really rely in large part too on the preventive phase, um, making sure you have the right preventive phase, and then also talking about this concept of autoimmune IBS with SIBO and the fact that you can treat with things that improve immune balance mm. and reduce. TNF-alpha and NF-kappa-B pathways so that you can have less autoimmune activity. And uh, so that's part of where we use low-dose naltrexone to help with the autoimmune component, uh, fish oil, other things like that that can really help with the autoimmune component. And uh, keep that in mind that folks that have high levels of antibodies against their migrating motor complex they are going to need uh, long-term treatment to to uh, improve their their motility, and they're going to need treatment to downregulate their autoimmunity. So, lots of good natural and uh, low-dose prescription treatment that can help with that, as well as the diet. I would urge all delegates that are going to be attend, please get some sleep beforehand, because I think those those intensive break-off sessions. Um, where you know you really delve into the cl- the clinical aspects of case histories and what you need to do, they're going to be really enlightening to to people attending that symposium. So, Stephen, I've got to thank you personally for really broadening my horizons about what I need to learn about 
um, because I've got to say I'm a newbie at this, I'm a noob. Um, so thank you from me personally, but I also would like to thank you for joining us on FX Medicine and uh, enlightening our listeners with your dedication to your patients over the years. You say that your father was a lot more into people than you are, but I think you've given a heck of a lot of hope and health to the patients that you've treated over your career, so thank you. You're welcome, Andrew. Nice talking to you today. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the 2017 Bioceuticals Research Symposium. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.